Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, wonderful friends. Thank you on Arab Thanksgiving for joining us. It's great to be with you all. If you're in other parts of the world, that Thanksgiving part might not make sense, but if you're in the States, um, we hope you it's a joy, joyful holiday for you. We are excited today to learn about the world in which God placed humans. Here with uh, Dr. Johnny Schnitzer, who recently completed his doctorate in medieval Kabbalah. His dissertation is focused on the Kabbalistic system, was focused on the Kabbalistic system of thought of Rabbi Joseph Ben Shalom Ashkenazi. Johnny's also preparing a critical edition of Ashkenazi's commentary on Sefer Yitzira probably the only PhD student or graduate now, the bio still says student, um, graduate in Jewish philosophy, who can say that he once beat the head of Israeli naval commandos in a swimming race. Johnny's also the author of a Mossad thriller, The Way Back, which paints a picture of contemporary Israel. Johnny has recently orchestrated the publishing of an English edition of the Hitler Haggadah, an important piece of Moroccan Jewish history from the Holocaust. He's also taken on several leadership roles in the Jewish world, including advisor to the CEO of Birthright and executive manager with Stand With Us. He lectures on a wide variety of topics relating to Judaism and Israel, especially about the untold stories and unspoken heroes of Jewish history. <clears throat> Happily married with four gorgeous little kids, lives in Israel and thinks that Australian rules football is the greatest sport ever invented. Um, so you can debate with him about that. <laughs> and um, as always, our, our, our hearts are with our friends in Israel after a, a really brutal terrorist attack um, that just occurred. Um, hopefully those those victims um, will have a speedy and quick recovery. And uh, Dr. Johnny Schnitzer, we are happy to learn with you today, the world in which God placed humans. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Okay, so we're going to start. I'm going to share my screen. Uh, brilliant. So... You know, as as Shmuley had just mentioned, Rabbi Shmuley, you know, we uh, uh, what I like to focus on is these untold stories. And I think today we're going to focus on one of perhaps the one of the greatest untold stories in, in medieval Kabbalah. Um, and it comes in perfect timing because, you know, so in this talk, I guess, as a sort of prelude, we have good news and we have bad news. And we'll start with the bad news, right? The bad news, we know we're living in a fractured world. We know we're living in a world where, you know, these beautiful gum trees, you know, rainforests, whatnot. We all know about global warming. We know about there's this sort of feeling that that, you know, we're ruining stuff. And in order to be able to 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 heal this fractured world, in order to be able to, uh, uh, um, you know, to to make a positive difference, to create instead of destroy, um, I think we need to go back to some sources, to some Kabbalistic secrets that I think are going to completely topple, completely change, revolutionize the way we view what it means to be a human, what it means, what our ethical responsibilities, our relationship between humans, the animal kingdom, uh, humans and and the natural world and so on and so forth. So but so let's I, I want to delve a little bit more into the, the bad news. OK, I'd like you all to meet Mindy. I don't know if any of you have come across Mindy, but there was a study that was uh, uh, that, that was published this past week 
where scientists wanted to understand, let's take the humanoid, let's take the human who is constantly focused, arching our backs uh, and necks into the computer screen, constantly holding on to our mobile phones, can't let it go. What are we going to look like in 3,000 years? And they perpetrated Mindy. Now, this is shocking, right? This is, this is, we don't want this, right? This is a, this is a world. And especially when we think of, you know, you read of these Midrashim, you read of these commentaries of, you know, of Abraham, the children of Abraham, uh, Dina, the boys, the girls, you, you read of these, you know, heroic, these very healthy, large, you know, people that, that had longevity. And, 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 and now we're going to get to Mindy. Right. That the sort of the discrepancy is huge. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? God created this wonderful world and we're on our way to becoming Mindy. OK, but 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 it gets the plot thickens a little bit more. OK, the metaverse now. So not only and I'm purposely being provocative I, when there's questions open up, bring a different view. I'd love that. But I'm purposely sort of stressing this point. So not only are we ruining our planet, not only are we going to become Mindy in 3000 years, but while we are busy destroying the world, we're basically telling God, guess what? We're creating an alternative virtual world where we're the gods. We get to do whatever we want, and it's called the metaverse. So whoever doesn't know what the metaverse is, right, it's this idea that, you know, we put now there are positive aspects to it. The idea is we put these things, these glasses onto our, you know, onto our faces. And let's say I'm a grandparent and I have a grandchild that is very far away and I can't see them. There are very positive aspects to the metaverse because it enables us to meet with our grandchildren in this or our lovers in in a room or in a holiday resort that we don't have the funding to pay for but but you know thanks to computer programmers we're able to have this lovely setting which increases our stimulation at the point of this meeting right there are wondrous things but one also can't help but wonder is this perhaps one of the greatest desecrations of god's name because it could be seen as an insult to say you know, you've created this world. It's all great, but it's not enough. We want more. We want something virtual. Now, I'm going to leave it out for question. One could ask or one could argue that the metaverse is not the greatest form of desecration of God's name, but it could even one of you could argue that it's one of the greatest sanctifications of God's name. And we might leave that to the end. But 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 it looks grim. Right. So thus far as the bad news, the bad news, we, we you know, things don't look so good. And, and but guess what? There is good news. And the good news is that, you know, thanks to digitization, we have today access to Kabbalistic manuscripts, to secrets of the past that we we, we never were able to, to, to visit. We were never able, were able to learn from. And you know what? I'm going to say at the outset, there is one secret I'm going to share with you tonight that is one of Kabbalah's best kept secrets. I kid you not. I even was thinking whether it is something that that, that we can talk about. I was not sure if we can talk about it. And thinking about this ethically, I'm convinced that today more than ever, such a secret that for hundreds of years, Kabbalists were not out of their lips, were not willing to talk about, today might help us. It might have an ethical purpose because it'll help us view the world in a different way. And you know what? For that, it's a pretty good thing. Okay, so let's let's begin. So how, how can we start this journey of, of, of viewing what it means to be human, what our relationship is to the natural world, how we are meant to view our, our dogs, our cats, how we are meant to view ethically the food that is on our plates.
before food consumption. Have we ever thought of food consumption as not a, a power struggle, right? A power game between us who's and them it's. But have we ever thought of the food that goes into our mind, of this, this, this culinary concept, as an ethical practice? Kabbalists have a lot to teach us about this. But again, this is an untold story. What I'm about to tell you tonight, this afternoon, night in Israel, is a marginalized story. It's a story that has been marginalized, as you see here in the picture. What you see here is a, is a manuscript from the 14th century in Spain. And there is a secret in the margins. What I'm what we are about to talk about tonight are literally secrets that have been marginalized. Because by and large, as we are going to see, mainstream Kabbalah, and we'll touch upon what that means, much like the rest of the world in the medieval era and even today, is anthropocentric. What does anthropocentric mean? It means that the human is at the center of everything. We are the only ones that matter. Everything else is here to serve us because we were created in God's image and nothing else. Wonderful. Okay. So in order to, to in order to jump into this, this Kabbalah, this marginalized Kabbalah, but a super profound and important Kabbalah, I want to sort of, I want to paint the picture. I want to give you how one could view medieval Kabbalah because great scholars like Gershom Sholem, Moshe Idel, Hanina Chaviva Pdaya have, have written about this. I want to give a slightly different take. I'm going to be, I'm going to, you know, bring in a bit of Jewish chutzpah. Okay. So usually if you read on Wikipedia or anywhere else, medieval Spain, uh, you know, 13th century Spain, where Kabbalah is being crystallized. What this means is that Jewish mysticism from the time of the second temple, perhaps from the time of, of Mount Sinai with Moses is going through a journey where secrets are slowly start, starting to be disclosed. They're starting to be written down. They're being developed. And in medieval Spain, Castile, we have two opposing, albeit quite similar at their core, Kabbalistic trends, streams, schools, if you like. The first one is what we are going to call the theurgic theosophic Kabbalah. Now, I know this sounds like a big word. What does this mean? It means that this Kabbalah focuses on the secret meaning of the commandments, meaning for the Jew and primarily the Jewish male, when a Jew keeps a certain commandment, what the theurgic theosophic Kabbalist is interested in is understanding how or creating a change in the Godhead. The purpose of theosophic theurgic Kabbalah is for us by 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 uh, by uh, um, going along with certain commandments. It could be, you know, it could be Sukkot. It could be Rosh Hashanah. It could be praying. It doesn't matter what. Any commandments. Our goal is to create a change in the upper world and the Godhead. What does this mean? It means we want to unify the Godhead. The Godhead needs our help. God or part of an aspect of God needs our help. There is also a fracture in the upper world, right? This, this is something Maimonides would, would never agree to. And Kabbalists say, look, things are more complicated. But that's a different talk. So, so we have this fracture. And so by, by committing the commandments, we are healing the upper world. And in return, this bounty, shefa, blessings pour down to the world. And who is important in this world? The human. This is an anthropocentric system. What matters is us. By the way, a representative of this theurgic theosophic Kabbalah is a book you've probably all heard of. Madonna's heard of it. The Zohar. The Zohar is a classic example. The Zohar, now the Zohar is a bit different because the Zohar, a, a, a Zoharic Kabbalist, do you know what a Zoharic Kabbalist's greatest fear is? 
that mummy and daddy in the upper world do not get divorced. That, that's sort of, you know, ke'ilu, pretend. The idea is we're meant to take this metaphor and internalize it in a deep, profound way to try and understand what this means. But, but that's in a nutshell. So we're meant to keep, you know, we're meant to do the commandments in order to keep them together above, to bring down poor, uh, down below, for the sake of us, humans. Okay, and, and by the way, you know, if you read the Zohar uh, or other similar Kabbalistic tracts, you know, uh, read about, uh, uh, um, you know, the purpose of animals, the purpose of nature, it's, it's, it's for the sake of us. Okay, that's Theodja Kabbalah. So Theodja Kabbalah is interested in a change in the Godhead for us. Now we have the other major trend, ecstatic Kabbalah. Ecstatic Kabbalah can also be called prophetic Kabbalah. Uh, th this is a school run. It's a one-man show, Rabbi Abraham Abulafia. Um, he's kicked out of Spain because the majority of Kabbalists don't accept this. He doesn't go with this idea of the dynamic Godhead, the spherotic Godhead, and the need to unify. Ecstatic Kabbalah is interested in one thing. It is in transforming or creating a change in the human, the human Kabbalist, who wants one thing and one thing only, to cleave to God. We want to cleave to God. And through different letter combinations, meditation, focusing on one word, on a combination of words in order to forget everything, our ultimate goal is to cleave to God for our own sake. Right? We want, we want to transform ourselves in order to cleave. And the idea then is we'll reach some profound prophecy, at, which is meant to benefit who? Humans. Right. These are two. And this is something that, that hasn't been. This is something that researchers sort of put aside. Usually when we look at these two uh, uh, schools of thought, then scholars will say Zohar is theocentric. It puts religion at the at the heart of the system because it's all about the commandments. And Abulafia is a gnomic. It's it's it, it's it's all about the the mystical experience. But one could argue that the commonality, the common denominator between Theodic Kabbalah and Abulafian Kabbalah, ecstatic Kabbalah, is that both are anthropocentric. Both are interested in and are solely focused on various changes, be it in the human, be it in the Godhead, for the sake of the human. We must ask ourselves, is there a place in these Kabbalistic systems for rainforests? What is the purpose of a walk in the forest according to these systems? What is the purpose of food consumption according to these systems? What, is there room for a dog or a cat or a cow in these, in these systems? And if so, what is it other than bettering our own selves? Enter a third trend, a Kabbalistic school that has been neglected, has been marginalized, the school of Yosef Ben Shalom Ashkenazi. I don't think he was the sole uh, rabbi in the school, but he is one of the major representatives. And for the sake of our talk, we will call it scientific Kabbalah. And why are we going to call it scientific Kabbalah? Because one of the greatest differences between, if we think of Greek philosophy, Aristotelian philosophy, and, and Plato's philosophy, is while Plato is interested in the upper world, Plato is interested in truth, which is only spiritual and above, and, and trying to understand that reality and connect to that reality through whatever we have here in the, you know, the, 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 the lower material world. Aristotle, while he's interested in metaphysics, is fascinated by the shells on the beach. He is fascinated by trying to understand. There is also, meaning the scientific aspect is an aspect that is also fascinated by nature. If we think of Heschel, 
right? This idea of all. You can't help but think if you, right? When we think scientific Kabbalah, we, we are still trying to understand and reach the upper world and connect and create a confluence between the upper world and the physical, the material world. But we are also in awe with the world we have here, as we're about to see. And in this, and, and now what's interesting about this school, so this school is a sort of a, a 13th century school. We know nothing about Yosef Ben Shalom Ashkenazi. We know nothing about the sort of chief perpetrator of this Kabbalah, other than a couple of facts. One thing we know is that he comes from the family of Rabbi Yudha, uh, of Regensburg, Rabbi Yudha the Pietist. He comes from a family of German Pietists. So his name is Ashkenazi, implying he's no longer in Ashkenazi. He's wandering Spain, Barcelona, where Sefer Yitzira is the book to understand. And Sefer, this is important to note because unlike Heichalotic literature, right? If we go back to the Second Temple for a moment, we can also see a anthropocentric as opposed to an ecocentric almost uh, uh, trend. We have Heichalotic literature, which is focused on, right, this is Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva and his friends are interested in, in reaching the realms of God, in visiting the chambers of the, the holy chambers of God, uplifting themselves in, in paradise. Whereas Sefer Yetzirah, whoever wrote it, is interested in not only understanding how God created this world, but 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 also in the elements of this world, the, the the rules, the internal rules. There is a, there is almost a double fascination, not only in the above, but also what's going on here. On, on here. And this can be viewed as two opposing things. So for that reason, it's important to note that Ashkenazi and everyone around Barcelona, where this is happening, this this eco you know this this ecocentric Kabbalah, as we're about to see. This is the picture we're trying to paint, a, a, a picture in which the human is interconnected to everything going around us. If I had to give it in a nutshell, I'd say that scientific Kabbalah, if the other forms of Kabbalah are anthropocentric, one is interested in making a check, creating a change in the Godhead to better the humans, and the other is interested in creating a change in the human to cleave to God for the better of humans, then scientific Kabbalah is interested in the constant change going on between humans and our surroundings. And as we're about to see, it is completely going to disrupt the very term human. If I've succeeded by the time we're done, we're all going to leave here not really sure what it means to be human. We're not really, that, that, that's the goal. If we get there, then amazing. If we're suddenly confused by human, animal, plant, pebble by the lake, amazing. Okay. In order to do this, we're going to focus on two doctrines. We're going to focus on two doctrines before the next slide. Um, which I think are, are, are very good representatives, given the short time we have. These are two mystical doctrines that predominantly appear in the scientific ecocentric Kabbalah and are almost completely neglected in anthropocentric Kabbalah, in the Kabbalah of the Zohar, in the Kabbalah of Abulafia. They are almost non-existent. And these two doctrines are what? One is reincarnation. And the other, this is the secret which, which, Sort of, I was debating whether we could even share the secret of cosmic cycles. It's called Torah Tashmitot. Now, just so we understand how secretive this is, I, you know, if I asked you now by a raise of hands, who's heard of reincarnation? I'm sure that 99.9% .9 will say me. And I'm also sure that if I asked one of you what reincarnation means, you'd know quite a bit about it. You know what? Even if we Google it, Google knows a whole lot about reincarnation, right? This, this isn't obvious. Now, why isn't this obvious? Because if we went back to 13th century Spain and you asked, right, uh, uh, 10 Jews, 10 non-Jews, anyone, what is reincarnation? Nine out of 10 would have no clue. 
And the one person that knew would know better than to tell you what it means. Okay. But, but something's changed. Today it's kosher. That, that's a separate story. Why? But Torah Tashmi taught the secret of cosmic cycles. When I ask today, I go around lecturing about this topic, and I ask, I want to raise of hands, who's heard of Torah Shmitot? Who's heard of cosmic cycles? Unless you're an academic focused on medieval Kabbalah, highly unlikely. And you know what? Even if you know about what it means, we're going to learn tonight something completely different from what's, what's at sort of the, the tip of the iceberg. That, that's, that's not really interesting. We're going to go delve deeper down and we're going to be shocked. We're, we're really going to, we, we are, I promise you, we're going to be shocked. Um, just to understand that the, the secret of the cosmic cycles, um, until 17th century, we have manuscripts that until 17th, even 18th century, Kabbalists would say this is a matter that lions are roaring about. There are grave disputes. And if you deal with this topic, we know this from a Moroccan Kabbalist, 17th century says, if you deal with this topic of Torah Tashmitot, you might go crazy. Okay, so, so this is one of the reasons why, why we didn't get into it. Okay, now just before we get into our first doctrine, uh, Shmitot, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, reincarnation, I just want to give you a brief history because I'm not sure who knows or doesn't know. Reincarnation explicitly appears for the first time in a, in a Hebrew or a Jewish book, because it's in, in Judo-Arabic, in a Hebrew, a Jewish book in the ninth century, Rabbi Sadia Gaon, Jewish philosopher. And guess what he says? He says, paraphrasing, um, there's a group of people, right? We're in, we're in Babylon, we're in Iraq. There's a group of people that call themselves Jews and they believe in reincarnation, right? We don't. Maimonides doesn't even mention the word once. He's not willing to mention the doctrine of, of, of reincarnation. Some could argue, and you, I can leave it for questions in the end, that it appears in the Talmud. I have a case that it appears in the Talmud, but we're going to put that aside. In the Bible, it doesn't appear face value. In the Talmud, it doesn't appear. And ninth century, it's negative. The first time that it appears in this radical form that we're about to learn today, in a way that everything reincarnates into everything in the Jewish bookshelf, is now ecocentric scientific Kabbalah of Yosef Ben Shalom Ashkenazi. And, and, and this, is, this is already going to change the way we view things. Okay. Now, what you see in the background, by the way, this is a, a 14th century manuscript. This is this beautiful binding. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's sitting in the, in the, uh, uh, in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. It was from the collection of David Oppenheim, who was the chief rabbi of Prague, this, you know, huge, great collector of, uh, of books, and Oxford bought his collection. Um, and inside this book, this very book that uh, David Oppenheim owned, we have the commentary of Sefer Yetzirah, written by Yosef Ben Shalom Ashkenazi. Now, the reason I didn't send a source sheet, we're going to see in a moment, is because we need to discuss these, 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 we really need to understand what we're reading. But okay. So let's start with with a with a working term, with a, a sort of you know working definition. And here we're going to define human through reincarnation, our first sort of snippet. All beings, this is Ashkenazi's greatest rule. The most important rule appears nowhere else in Kabbalah outside of our scientific Kabbalah, 13th century. All beings go through the law of transmigration, Din Bnei Chalof, in ascent and descent, and everything is according to true justice. The, 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 the important thing here is that the latter. While I mentioned that, that reincarnation, you know, appears in a radical form in Ashkenazi's ecocentric Kabbalah, it does appear in the Zohar. 
But in the Zohar, it is very limited. It is there is one place in the Zohar that talks about reincarnation. It's only for sort of a, um, you know a sexual misconduct usually, and it's it's very limited to um, humans being reincarnated into humans about three times until you get your act together. Okay, and there was another Kabbalist, uh, Rabbi Yosef Abamishushan, Yosef from from uh, Persia, um, who also wrote about the possibility of humans uh, reincarnating into animals. However, there it is clear that the purpose of his, he wrote a, a rationale to the commandments, but it's very clear, whoever reads it, that the, the reason he's writing this is to scare Jews into, you know, abiding the law, right? If you don't want to become a pig, do what you're told. If you don't want to become an ox, you know, do you know who becomes a porcupine, by the way? You become a porcupine if you reveal Kabbalistic secrets to non-Jews. So, so this is going to be written down and they're going to say, and, and by the way, there were debates about this. According to other schools, you know, the porcupine of the cow is, is someone else. It's, it's other, you know, mis, mis, uh, misbehaviors. But my point is that this, this latter part of the sentence, for Ashkenazi, unlike Maimonides, Maimonides believed that God's divine providence is general in the world. God isn't, God is transcendental, this ain't soft. God isn't really interested in the small details. It's an important distinction. In fact, it's a bit elitist because who does God, you know, sort of watch over those elite ones that, that get to really cleave to God through, you know, uh, that have these perfect traits, the sort of perfect human. But Ashkenazi comes and says, no, God is interested and watches over every single being, being. Now, I want to make this clear. Let's call humans, for the sake of our talk, storytelling beings. Because the only difference between us and other beings is that we tell stories. We do two things. We live and we talk about our life. We tell stories. So that's a sort of good working definition. We are storytelling beings. And I say this because what human means is, 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 is very fluid in, in this scientific Kabbalah. So Ashkenazi says, unlike the Zohar, unlike our anthropocentric Kabbalah, Ashkenazi, and unlike Maimonides, Ashkenazi says God watches over every single thing from the pebble in the lake to, to, to the chicken, everything. And the way that the manifestation of God's divine providence is Din Bnei Chalof, the law of transmigration. What does this mean? Let's move on to the second one. And therefore, he, the human being, our storytelling being, has the potential to transmigrate and be transmigrated into any inanimate object, plant, animal, intelligent being, or into any of the celestial orbs, planets, zodiacal signs, separate intellects, angels, and into the essence of any of the ten spherot. Now, th th this is like, this is a crazy moment. This is, this is sort of a passage that when you read this, you're like, you know, your jaw drops. You know, if you're a rapper, if Ashkenazi was a rapper, after saying this, it's that moment where you drop the mic. That's it. Like, you can't even hear the crickets outside because they get this. They're like, oh, this incorporates me as well. I'm in this story as well. That the storytelling human is only one aspect of this. This is crazy. That this is think of think of modern theory. Think of animal human studies today. They're miles away from this. Miles away. Right. This is now what is Ashkenazi talking about? Yeah, I want to focus on the first sentence. So other than other than saying that everything transforms into everything, get this, the human can even become part of the Godhead. But 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 he he includes everything else. He's left nothing outside of this. But here's one important thing. 
Even in Ashkenazi system, there is an anthropocentric element. However, it is an ethical element. It is not one, I believe, that says all that matters is us. It is one that says being human, like the chosen people, doesn't mean you're the best people. It means you are given a responsibility and you must prove, you must make it right that you were chosen. Right. So, so, so what does he say here? He says here, and therefore, the human being has the potential to transmigrate. In Hebrew, legalgil means we have the or ethical responsibility. We are, as storytelling beings, we also have the power to, to make this happen to others. And we're going to read a passage in a moment to see how exactly this happens. So it's not only that we can transform into everything as part of God's divine providence and everything can transform into us, but 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 th- th- this idea that, that we also have this ethical role. Remember what we said before, our working definition of scientific Kabbalah, ecocentric Kabbalah. If the others are interested in a change in the Godhead or a change in the human, Ashkenazi is interested in a change, a constant change between the storytelling being and the beings around us. The idea being we're moving from creation to redemption, and we're going to get there through these certain acts that that are in our power. We're moving on to our second one, to our third, because now now the stuff now now we're going to get a rationale for how how it is. Remember, this is the first time in the Jewish bookshelf that we know about where we are told that anything can be reincarnated into anything else. So he's going to explain how this is. This is another one of those mic dropping moments. And the secret of creation, right? This is a big claim. The secret of creation is that all beings share commonalities with humans and humans share commonalities with them. Now, it's important to share with you the Hebrew because I spend a lot of time trying to translate this and I'm still not happy with it. The word is meshutaf. So the secret of creation, soda yetzira, lihiot ha'adam, lihiot now, Meshutaf can also imply partnership. There is a connotation here, not only of, like, the, the way I understand this is that if you take our DNA, Ashkenazi is basically saying, and I didn't bring other passages, but he's talking both about our physical matter and our soul, our spiritual. In both physical and spiritual, our DNA is a mix of human or storytelling being animal, uh, plant, and so on and so forth. And this commonality that we share, these qualities internally in our, in our matter and spirit, I would enable Din Bnei Chalof. Now, this is fascinating because once we are told that the secret of creation is that we share commonalities with humans and humans with them, then the question that begs itself is then what's a human? Now, it's clear from this sentence that a human, the human is the object, right? The human is at the center here. That's clear. But what does it mean to be human? It's fluid because a human meaning the, the human is something. So we're going to see in a moment a human, when we reach our cosmic cycles, it, it's, 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 it's going to get wild. But right now we have this, we have this picture of we are humans. We, we have, you know, the, these things inside us that are like others. And this allows this constant change. And we have the power not only to to, uh, um, you know, make this change happen in other beings, but we, we also go through this. Okay. Now, now we're going to read a passage that is fascinating because it is, it is, it is a Kabbalistic, uh, uh, you know, Charles Darwin, eat your heart out. And he first mentioned the transmigration of aquatic species, 
right? He, this is from his commentary on Genesis Rabbah. So there's a verse that talks about how God creates, right, the six days of creation. And Ashkenazi wants to use this to explain a, a secret about, about transmigration, about reincarna- reincarnation. And he first mentioned the transmigration of aquatic species, for they are finer beings than the species of land. And if he did not return as an aquatic species, but rather as a fool, this is a verse, as a fool who repeated his folly, he would become a bird. That is a species which comes from the seabed. And if not as a bird into an animal, and if not as such, then into an insect. And if not as such, into an animal that swarms the land. What we have here is a fascinating uh, 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 an evolution of reincarnation. In fact, there is another passage um, where Ashkenazi talks about how once you're transmigrated, say a human is transmigrated, you get punished, you know, because you need to be better. So you become a, 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 a non-kosher bird or you become a being that has three fingers. Right. So, so Ashkenazi says that before you get to go back to being human, you're going to first move on to being a, a form of animal that has four fingers. And only then you're going to move up. So this idea of this continuum that, that, that are shared, right? The Talmud even talks about this, that a, that a monkey is, is, you know, half animal, half human. So these ideas of a sort of continuum of species or coral, coral is, is half, uh, you know, inanimate supposedly and, and a half, uh, you know, a plant, flora. So, so, so these ideas and Ashkenazi is building upon these ideas to say, we are all connected. There's this continuum of being, and it also applies to the rules of, of reincarnation. Okay. So, so far, what we've seen is we've seen a radical view of reincarnation. Um, we don't have time today to get into what Luriana Kabbalah and the Ari did to this, but I will say in brackets, the Ari basically stripped it of its ecocentricism and he turns it anthropocentric again because he goes with the Zohar. Um, I'm doing injustice here to the Ari by saying this in a sentence, but it's important because one of the reasons reincarnation as a doctrine became so uh, known so popular mainstream in in on the jewish bookshelf is due to what happened in 16th century spain but there were great changes that happened to ashkenazi system the ashkenazi influences later kabbalah but then this this idea has changed and marginalized so what we have so far is a, is a working definition of human and we see that you know w- we have a lot in common with with other beings around us we have a hint here at an ethical responsibility um, and now I want to focus on, to sort of drive this point, I want us to look at uh, food consumption as ethical responsibility. Because as I mentioned at the at the outset of this talk, there's a lot of, you know, today, you know, environmental humanities are very interested in how we can redefine food, how we can look at the act of food in a way that isn't who's and it's, but, but is something else. Uh, you know, it, it's even connected to a whale that is that is killed, found, you know, on shore with 44 kilos of plastic in its belly. It, this, this has ramifications also of human as humans, as what we do with garbage, what we do with rubbish and, and how we are feeding other animals without even thinking about this due to our actions. So I want to I want I want to uh, this is a passage that's going to stress the focus of this Kabbalah that is interested in the constant change going on between humans and interconnectedness to other beings or storytelling beings with other beings. Okay, so it is known that every transmigrating, uh, everything transmigrates according to whatever eats it. For example, now, by the way, the reason he's going to give us an example is because he knows that no one else in Kabbalah 13th century is talking about this. So we need an example because what is going on here? What are you, meaning we need to understand that this first sentence is a bomb. 
This first sentence is not obvious in Zohar. It's not obvious anywhere else. So everything transmigrates according to whatever eats it. For example, from the food eaten by an animal, that which is worthy of generation, meaning to be reproduced, uh, will become part of the animal. And that which is, so grass, if right, a cow eats grass, the, the grass now is being elevated from plant to cow. Uh, and that which is worthy to become an insect will become feces. And from feces, an insect. Right, fascinating. Ashkenazi says nothing gets wasted. This, is, this says that excrement is important. And this is fascinating because there are Hasidic texts where excrement is impure. It is tum'ah. It is, right, this is part of this. What we're looking at here is a material turn, a positive material turn in medieval era, which to my mind has been killed, has been sort of marginalized later on on the Jewish bookshelf for anthropocentric purposes. In much the same way, that which is worthy of becoming human, right, whatever human means, will become human by a person's eating it. And what is worthy of corruption will become feces. But as we saw, corruption does not mean death. It means changing to something else, perhaps going down in the rule of transmigration. So, too, is the case with wild animals, birds, animals, fish, detestable things, shkutzim, and every insect which swarms the land. And from here, you learn that every inanimate being plant, living and speaking being, all undergo the law of transmigration, din b'nei chalof, to ascend or ascend. This is what we read before, and all in accordance with true justice. As it is written, right, he says, you want proof from the Bible? As the commandment of the Lord, that they shall journey, and at the commandment of the Lord, they shall encamp. God is constantly watching over the transmigration of every single being. So how is it possible for an impure insect to become pure bird? If the bird feeds off the insect, in turn, the insect becomes an egg, and that very egg will return to become another pure bird, or it shall be eaten by a human being and become human. So there's even an implication here that the goal of the, of, of the scientific Kabbalist, of the ecocentric Kabbalist, the ultimate project is to differentiate or is to purify the impure. But everything matters. Matter matters. Right? We don't have time in the short time we have to, to discuss but essentially, the forms of reincarnation Ashkenazi talks about are not only um, uh, metempsychosis, meaning reincarnation of, of the soul, but also metensymptosis, reincarnation of, of physical matter. Everything matters. Thus far, reincarnation. I'm speeding along because we don't have much time uh, to leave it for, for questions. Let's move on now to cosmic cycles. Um, now, now things are going to get a bit scary. Okay. So what's the doctrine of, of cosmic cycles or Shemitot? I'm quoting here from Danny Matt's, uh, Danny Matt, before he created the, the, the majestic translation of the Zohar, um, he, um, he wrote his doctorate on, on, he actually wrote his doctorate, uh, Daniel, Professor Daniel Matt, on a Kabbalist that was from our ecocentric school. He wrote his doctorate in Rabbi David, uh, Rabbi David ben Yudah Hasid, who was the, perhaps the prized pupil of Ashkenazi. And in that book, so anyway, we have here a working definition of this. What is the doctrine of the Shemitot? So the doctrine of Shemitot concerns cosmic cycles of time. If based, uh, uh, it was based on, on a, an astrological idea mediating to the Kabbalist, these ideas, blah, 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 blah. What is this? Astrologers are very much interested in, in the, the, the age of the world. And at what point the world is going to return to itself? Is the world exists for 6,000 years, 48,000 years? At what point do the stars, the constellations shift and then return to themselves? This could be called in Hebrew tshuva. When do we lashuv? When does everything return 
to, 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 to where it's meant to go, right? Shuva is a very profound idea. Shuva means that we were all born perfect and that our goal is to return to ourselves to discover ourselves. We're not about Western development to become something we are not. It is about returning to ourselves. And guess what? The cosmos does this as well. So Rav Ktina in the Talmud teaches us the following jaw-dropping statement. The world exists for 6,000 years, and then for 1,000 years, it lies destroyed. Kabbalists took this to understand, right? We have the, we have the, 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 the commandments of the sabbatical in the Bible. What does this mean? That we have seven cycles of seven years, right? Every seventh year, we have the sabbatical year where you can't touch the land of Israel. You, you know, you can't grow stuff. You know, it's, it, the land is holy. It's, it's the seventh day annually for the land. And on the 50th year, the Jubilee, you know, slaves get free. It's this, you know, everything returns to what it's meant to be. Okay. Kabbalists understood this to mean this is the secret of existence. Now I'm giving you the, the tip of the iceberg, the sort of boring secret. It's wild, but it's still boring. And what is that? That according to this Kabbalistic view that the Zohar, this doesn't appear in an anthropocentric Kabbalah. And in a moment, we'll understand why. This view says the world exists not for 7,000 years, not for 6,000 and then lies destroyed for 1,000 and then Messiah comes or happily ever after or Lam Haba, the world to come. But rather, there are seven cycles, seven worlds of 7,000. Meaning, um, there was a world before us. Now, now we have 10 spherots in the Godhead. The three upper spherot you can't touch. Keter Elyon, Chochmah, Bina, don't touch them. They're the brain. The seven lowest spherot, now we're moving into Ashkenazi, know that the intention of creation, this isn't the secret of creation, this is the intention of creation, was for the existence of all beings, right? This is so ecocentric. Everything matters. Everything needs to exist. And the elevation of each category, okay? In each one of the Shemitot, a different sphere governs. Now, what, what does this mean before we read the second passage? So basically, um, so there are good news and bad news. The bad news is uh, so, uh, the bad news is that the previous Shemitah, so we're already in the second cycle. The world has already gone through 7,000, uh, 6,000 years, the previous world, which was governed by Chesed. It was a great world because Chesed is a great attribute of God. We'll get to that in a moment. And then the world was destroyed. Destroyed does not mean souls are destroyed. Destroyed means a reset to the natural rules. Destroy means there is going to be a continuum of time, a thousand years, let's call it a thousand, where the rules of that world no longer apply to the rules of this world because we are shifting from a governance of chesed to the governance of gvura, hence the bad news. Ashkenazi writes in 13th century Barcelona, do you want to know why there is anti-Semitism in the world? Do you? This is before the Spanish Inquisition. He already knows this is the rule of the world, unfortunately. He argues, do you want to know why there is racism built into this world? Do you want to know why there are plagues, why there are wars? What can you do? We are governed by the sphere of Gvura. It's not all bad, but, but, but you know, it's stern judgment. And this also explains why the Torah that we have in this world, okay, this is another sort of secret. So according to the cosmic cycle, there is one Torah, but it manifests itself differently in every one of the worlds. So the reason our world has a Bible with many trans, you know, transgressions, 
because we live in a world full of urges. We live in, you know, this, this special world that we, this fractured world, and we need this kind of Torah. Okay. So, so, so we basically understood that, that, okay, so according to Zohar, the world is 7,000 years and then happily ever after. And according to the ecocentric Kabbalah, the world is 50,000 years and then happily ever after. What do I need this for? What do I need this, right? Well, like, why do I need to be told that what is the deep secret if I have these, you know, is it just a, is it just a matter of eschatology? Is it just a matter of how long is the clock going to tick until Messiah comes? No. And the wise person will understand from their names of the Sfirot, who, that is which category, governs in each Shemitah, whether it is the human upon others or others upon the human. Do we realize what we've just read? What we've just read here is a Kabbalist telling us that in this world, humans rule the natural hierarchy, right? We have humans, we have animals, we have plants, we have inanimate objects. Ashkenazi is telling us in this world, the humans govern because we're governed by Gvuran. So that's what the constellation needs to be. But if you understand the secret of the Sphira, of what Tiferet means, of what Netzach means, of what Hod means, you will know the implication here is that in a different, the next cosmic cycle, we're not the ones in charge. This is like Planet of the Apes, like not really, but it's sort of, you know, to drive a point home. This is crazy. This is a, a medieval storytelling being who can accept the fact that human dominance is temporary. That's wild. Cosmic cycles, the secret of Shemitot is the macro of reincarnation. This is why these two doctrines go together. If the other one is talking about how there is no such thing as human because we are interconnected. And yes, the only thing we can say about a storytelling being in this world is that we have an ethical responsibility to drive the change towards purification of everything. That's temporary. In another world, things are going to change. And it's not going to be meaning we, we've completely toppled what it means to be human. Now, now, now I'm going to share with you a, a hypothesis, and this is really scary. Our Torah in the sphere of in the Shemitah of Gvurat, right, tells us that humans were created in God's image. Could we imply from this? I'm going to be very careful. Could we imply from this that in another Shemitah where there's another Torah, that verse is different? That the that the creature, the being that is created in God's image in a different Shemitah is not the human. Now, this is wild because anthropocentric Kabbalah is not only solely focused on the human, but is solely painting a picture of the Godhead as an anthropos, the Godhead as a human. However, our ecocentric Kabbalah is saying no. It's it's everything. Right. If you take every cosmic cycle and put them together, you have this beautiful picture of everything matters and God is governing over everything. Now, this is a secret that was kept for for hundreds of years. But you know what? Today it might be time to start talking about things like this, because Perhaps today we need to change or, or, or view or go back to our sources to try and see 
what can medieval Kabbalah, what can scientific Kabbalah, what can Ashkenazi help us to redefine, right, to make more relevant a walk in a forest, to make more relevant the next time we're walking in the street, we, we see a pigeon, we see a pebble, right? Well, it's not only about, you know, it's not only about the, the flower industry during Valentine's or, or, you know, whether you're allowed to, you know, it's interesting. We talk a lot about vegetarians and sort of being vegetarian. One could argue, but, but you know, we, we are so um, influenced by Greek philosophy and this Aristotelian idea of anima, that the only thing that lives is something that moves. Ashkenazi in another place in his commentary says, no, Aristotle, you got it wrong. Do you know why? Because the world rotates. And if the world moves, then everything has life, Aristotle. Right? This is why this is a scientific Kabbalist. This is someone that says, I need to use my scientific dagger when I want to prove Aristotle wrong and then use it as a platform to show what ecocentric Kabbalah is all about. I'll conclude with, with one minute just to sort of to understand. So I, I'm part of my research. I'm fascinated by trying to find other Kabbalists other than Ashkenazi that had such a view. I found a manuscript from 1403, somewhere in the Byzantine Empire that is a commentary on the Bible. Now, this is wild because Ashkenazi is a theoretician. He's, a, he's also a practicing Kabbalist, but, but he's not interpreting the Bible according to cosmic cycles. What we're about to read now is an example, I think, evidence that cosmic cycles as an idea was so profound that in a certain school of thought, in a certain study hall, Jews, Kabbalists were interpreting the Bible according to Shemitot. Okay. So Jacob, in the Torah portion of Vayechi, he blesses his grandchildren, the famous blessing, and may they proliferate abundantly like fish, right, like dagim in the water, fish in the, sea, in the land, to be blessed, and this is the Kabbalist already interpreting, to be blessed by the reward of the Shemitah. And this is what is alluded to in the Torah by saying proliferate abundantly like fish. Vayidgu means fish. This is alluded to the this alludes to the previous Shemitah, which was Chesed and attributed water. And all beings of that Shemitah were not bothered in water. They were not bothered. They were not bothered because they were in water, and they would swim in water like fish, and nothing bothered them. Now this implies, right, that there is no human in the previous world. Everything's swimming like fish. This is this is incredible. This. But not only this, so what does this interpretation say? It says that what was the blessing that Jacob gave his grandchildren? He said to them, you're living in a world of Vura. It's a tough world for a Jew to live in, for, 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 for any storytelling being to live in. I want to bless you that may your entire life be governed by the Shemitah of Chesed. That is a beautiful blessing. It was great back then. So, so this is just to show that this idea of ecocentric Kabbalah, scientific Kabbalah, appears elsewhere. And, and, and my hypothesis is being marginalized. It's something that's sort of being pushed aside. And, you know, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is, is to dig up these different manuscripts where we have these opposing views. We have views that I think today are very, very relevant. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Okay. How can we actually use um, these ideas, these actual scientific laws in, you know, in the context of Kabbalah and so, as something that we teach today in a more ecocentric way? So I think that, I think that's a that's a fascinating question and a fasc, fascinating idea. I, I think Ashkenaz, right? What you're meant, what you're saying now is essentially the, the simple answer is doing what Ashkenazi was doing. It's right. This unlike Zohar, unlike other very profound and important uh, uh, forms of Kabbalah, 
you know, there was a, a the problem with the problem that many Kabbalists and Hasidim have with with nature um, is that when you're not scientific, when you're platonically interested in, you know, just sort of elevating to the divine, then there's no room for what's going on here. Meaning the scientific investigation, that sort of modus operandi, the mindset is, is part and parcel of the scientific Kabbalah. And I'd say to you, do exactly what Ashkenazi do, meaning it's right. So he'll take, for example, the idea of anima, as I mentioned before, he'll take a scientific idea, a rule, and he'll say, I first want to understand the logic of it. It's also important to say that Ashkenazi was a skeptical Kabbalist. Skepticism mm -hmm. is very important here because the, the, the not, not skeptic in the sort of classic philosophical sense of questioning everything, but, but, but questioning ideas that are written in books around us and saying, wait a second, I want to argue with this. So what does scientific Kabbalah mean? It means that, that science are the, the keys that unlock the gate. But then once we pass through the threshold, we're entering into a world of Kabbalah. And it's important to say this because there were many letter combination and, and mystical meditative systems Ashkenazi had. He had that as well, but it's putting it together with. The, so meaning the first, you know, uh, um, you know, item of action is let's take law, you know, the conservation of mass. Let's try and skeptically think about this. You know, do I accept what is said about this? What do I have to say about this? And then trying to see how I can apply this or create a confluence between this scientific idea, because that's what Ashkenazi is doing. He's saying the only way I can make science supposedly perfect, the only way I can make astrology perfect, anatomy perfect, is by creating a confluence with mysticism, with with the knowledge which which is not embedded in a in a in a in the in the mind of a scientist that is deducting stuff and the problem with deduction is that you know a human mind if you're not if you don't have the help of the divine the working assumption is you're going to make mistakes yes and the pro you know they're going to print a book and you're going to say this is the rule and it sticks for thousands of years right two plus two is four we don't even know we don't even know if that's true but we cheat our kids we just keep teaching them two plus two is four go argue with that well, right. under a different sephora. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, under a different sephora. Yes, but, but I think it's a, a wonderful, wonderful point. And I think it's it's precisely things like that. I think it's fascinating. In fact, I didn't. I think it's a fascinating thing to to to, to piece together. Um, other other questions. Okay, we have on the chat. Uh, see chat. Um, okay, so we have here. Um, Interesting to consider research that suggests that plants have levels of intelligence, that plants communicate with each other, a lateral evolution of soul rather than a hierarchy from the pebble or grass human. Yes, exactly. So when we think of, right, and the reason I brought the, you know, the idea of like walking in nature, you're walking across gum trees or anything else, you know, this system says ultimately there is a soul within this tree, like an actual soul, meaning Meaning, if everything, if the assumption is that in this world, human makes mistakes or gets rewards, and as a result is then transmigrated into something else, then both the plant, the pebble, and the human share the same thing, and that is that is a soul. And if that is the driving force, then yes, no doubt whatsoever, according to ecocentric Kabbalah, um, you have. One could argue. You know, it's it's it, I think I think it's an interesting question. Do you have the same intelligence or the same potential of intelligence? Because there are certain things that you you can't quite do because being a plant or being an animal, you know, you can't, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, it's interesting, by the way, because according to Luriana Kabbalah later on, uh, the Ari makes a distinction between, um, you know, humans that don't know 
that you know what they were reincarnated into or what they've become or their journey whereas say a dog or an animal does know is aware that i'm being punished which is pretty scary again this is part of a sort of anthropocentric kabbalah that looks i think it, it, it animals at least not in a sort of a, a shared view but in, in sort of differentiating one to ensure that we we keep keeping commandments um what are the celestial orbs um so yeah, so so there are two things. So with Ashkenazi, he, he has an entire astro-kabbalistic system. Whoever heard, I think it's on YouTube. We had here a talk about his uh, uh, path to prophecy. Um, it, it's all about combining both uh, astrological elements and and astronomical elements. The celestial orbs here. It's an interesting question because there's a bit of debate about what we're talking about here. Um, you know, the, sometimes it can be schalim nivdalim which are sort of higher forms of, uh, you know, intelligence, but usually what we're talking about literally uh, uh, constellations in, in, um, in the galaxy, but, but it is a fascinating question because it really is depending on the passage we're looking at in Ashkenazi, how we really do read those celestial orbs. Um, um, if there aren't any other questions, then uh, thank you very much. It's yeah. been, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to learn with you. Uh, and thank you all for joining us as well. Um, our next class will be next Thursday on December 1st. We hope you can join us for Reading Vaikra with our children, Strategies, Challenges, and Opportunities with Dr. Chami Jacobowitz. Uh, that'll be at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. Um, and wishing everyone who is celebrating tomorrow a very happy Thanksgiving. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.